I'm Alika Boma, and you're listening to a podcast hosted by the Accelerating Achievement for Africa's Adolescence Hub, hosted by Oxford University and the University of Cape Town. This podcast was recorded as part of a series in Oxford in November 2019 to discuss the theme of understanding adolescence in African contexts. Thanks for listening. So we're talking about care. So, um, Olenka, maybe if I could start with you. Um, what do you understand by adolescence? And when you're thinking about it, how, what are some of the important issues we need to think about when considering adolescence in context? Um, adolescents are, uh, could be defined or looked at in different ways. Some um, have decided that they would use the age to define the period of adolescence. And um, the common definition by the United Nations is adolescents are a group of people between the ages of 10 to 19, from age 10 to 19. Um, and um, some others have you know, make, made it a bit broader, say adolescents are between 12, or usually it ranges between that age. But the, the, the issues that are common about adolescents is that adolescence is the period where there's a rapid change physically, socially, and when puberty starts. And then, of course, we have all the secondary sexual characteristics. So there are different things going on during the period of adolescence. There are biological changes. That's the growth and um, changes, development, and so on. There are emotional changes. Um, the, the change from thinking in a concrete way seeing things concretely and into that's when the abstract thinking emerges and then also um, it's a period that leads from childhood to adulthood so that period that helps you know where the many things happen so that at the end of it the person is said to be an adult and that's why there are very very vague um, boundaries in terms of the definition of adolescence. And in terms of looking at it in context, um, it, it, that in many cultures, people have, particularly on the African continent, there have been questions about adolescence. Because some, in many cultures, adolescence ends when people get married. Mm. So in a culture where marriage takes place very early, some, you know, which is, of course, we know it's against the United Nations Convention of the Rights of the Child. But in many cultures, it still happens. Girls are married, some as young as 10. That's when adolescence starts. So where is the period of adolescence for them? So we, if we're talking about adolescence, we need to look at so many factors. The context is so important that that would determine, and does, does the culture recognize that, that, that there's that period of youth, that is, they're not children, at the same time they are not adults. Do, does the culture you know, recognize that? I think those are things we need to think about as we look at adolescence, particularly on the African continent. 
So, so picking up on that, Cindy, particularly around the issue of context. So when we're thinking about adolescence as this period of rapid change, what are, in, in your mind, some of the salient features about context and the interaction with context during adolescence that really shape uh, that experience? Well, I, I think, um, in, as Ola was saying, in terms of where people live and what's expected of them, but the kind of differences that we've been speaking about this morning is intersectionality. But if you are living in a rural area and you have responsibilities in in for care within your family or getting married at, a, at 15 years old and having your own child, there are so many different aspects that affect whether somebody is cared for or caring and usually all of us at every stage in the life course are both and so adolescence um, I think in my experience and and I have to say that this uh, workshop has made me realize oh I worked with adolescents I said before I came here I only worked with children but they were 10 mm. so I worked with adolescents um, but um, they were learning and I'm going to speak about that case because I think it speaks to that question of context. They were learning the uh, relationships work-wise and familial and um, environmental. I was really focused on agricultural and environmental learning that they needed to learn in order to do the work of the adults in their community. However, all of the kind of political ecological relationships were changing at that moment because of an agricultural project. So here's development, which in fact required more work of children and adolescents, and therefore less possibility of schooling if we think that's a, a path to a different kind of adulthood. And yet they were learning a kind of knowledge that they weren't going to be able to easily use in their adulthood. So to me, so much of what adolescence is, is about that transitional period. And a apropos of what Lorraine said this morning about, you know, we're thinking at, as adults as the end point, it seems like every phase of the life course is a fluid period. And so when we're young adults, it's different than middle-aged adults and different than old age. So I think we can imagine ourselves and adolescence in itself as in between childhood and, and young adulthood, but the factors that weigh upon children depending on their gender, birth order, older girls, I don't know if this has been true in your experience, but in, in rural Sudan, being the oldest girl means you're taking care of your younger siblings, and you that when you get the next one is is arrives on the scene you don't graduate to get to do something else you stay in that position and younger children have different opportunities and it's an interesting kind of set of relationships so class gender birth order and um, and whether one is in um, a rural urban or interim area are all way on are all part of the context, which makes it impossible for us to speak of adolescence in Africa. Mm. So picking up on that, Lucy, with, with your coming at it from slightly older adolescence, mm. I mean, what are some of the main aspects of context which you have observed in, in your own work which are really shaping the experience that those adolescents have? 
I struggle sometimes to know how much we should be universalizing and how much we should be saying that everything is context dependent. Because, you know, and in some ways it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an argument to get where different disciplines get pitted against each other and that's quite unhelpful because people just kind of retreat into their, into their holes and, and throw stones at each other. And so, so in the kind of the biomedical model, you create something and then you, you expand it, you know, and, and you scale it to everyone because there's an assumption that there's some shared capacity that that will work. And then the, the kind of opposite model is the idea that everything is down to the tiniest context, that every village, you can't translate from one village to the next door village or from one household to the next door household. And on one level, you recognize that that's true. And on another level, you think that that's utterly unhelpful if you're going to try and do anything. And so that's when, you know, maybe that's a, a very, um, only the most obvious understanding of context. But that's where I always struggle, and I, do, I don't know the answer to it. So maybe let's pick up on one piece of that. So in some sense, the interventions are shaping the context. Mm. So by doing a universal intervention, you're putting some universal aspect mm. to the context. And so one arguably important aspect of, of the context is care. Mm. So to perhaps to, to return to you, Olienka, is that what role do you see care playing in, in the lives of, of adolescents, and particularly in that African context? Mm. And sometimes we see this as a period of emerging independence, of peer influence. Is there still a primary role for care? Is it something that we need to think about in a, in a universal uh, way? Um, I think that the care that adolescents will really benefit from. Although I say at the same time we can still salvage at adolescent period, but I think the care needs to have started even before adolescence. Mm. Yes. You know, many times we forget and we feel, okay, let's get the adolescents. But adolescents are people that see in between their critical thinking has developed. They're able to be they're judgmental. They need to trust you. They need to ensure, know that you're going to be loyal to them. And it's easier if you have built a relationship with them in their childhood. Or if someone has. If someone, yeah, not necessarily, mm. yeah. If someone else had built uh, so that they learn to trust and that they know that they will get justice. Because those issues are even more important in adolescent, in the period of adolescence. They, 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 you, you, you know, like the way you can tell children things and children will believe you, <laughs> adolescents know because they see and it's very important for them to, that what you're saying is what you're actually doing. So in terms of care, I would say the best, from my own perspective, is care and nurturing and care and friendship that has started before adolescence by somebody else and that continues through adolescence but in the event that the adolescent has not had that benefit of a childhood of care um, I think it's still possible but it just that it will take a bit more 
time and energy and effort because you are building on a foundation that is not there. I think it's important to, the first thing is to gain friends, to develop friendship, trust and friendship. Whichever contact care, I mean, I, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, so I see adolescents in difficult, very difficult, severe mental illnesses, with depression, with psychotic illnesses. There still needs to be a relationship. You need to, they need to trust you. Mm-hmm. But those adolescents that I are under my care, who I had managed when they were children, it's much easier because mm-hmm. we've built a friendship over the years. So mm-hmm. I say, whatever, even within the juvenile justice system, and that's some of the problems we have on the African continent, the, um, I, I, the problems of training of the, the, the staff who look after the um, who man these um, institution, correctional institutions. And many times they're abusive, not knowing that the adolescent, the reason why the adolescent is there is because they've suffered and had difficulties, and that's why they've broken the law, and that's why they're in the juvenile justice system. And they need understanding, and they need friendship, even in that state of care. Yeah. So, Cindy, I want to pick up on that. So, this continuity of care, if you like. So, from your own work with, with younger children going through, how do you see this interaction of the care that you receive earlier and the care that you receive later? Whether it be good care earlier and bad care later, or, or changing nature of care? What is the One thing that I was thinking about is the way that the extended family works as like a caring, uh, an arena of care, um, in, in the, at least in my experience in this village and in other places in my own family, where you have a sense of there are many adults and older kids and younger kids, you know, but there are many people who are looking out for you and who love you or care for you or feed you, you know, or discipline you, but there's a way that you're part of a bigger framework. I mean, when I one of the things that was really striking to me in, in my fieldwork was a, a young mother of seven children just died. So I think she had a stroke, you know, I think she probably had high blood pressure, you know, but she just literally dropped dead. And I thought if that happened in you know in a Western you know industrial context, the, the entire family would fall apart. The father would not have been able to handle this, but the grandmothers stepped in, and the aunts and uncles, and they all lived in a big courtyard house, you know, um, house yard. So that kind of continuity of care and sense that somebody's there for you. Not, it's not necessary that they are intensely working on you, there, but there was a sense of, of community. But, but another thing that's striking, and this is, um, it, it goes to what I was saying about older daughters in particular, is people were caring for their younger siblings, and you did not have a sense of like, I, you know, get out of here. I'm going to go play with my friends. Like, even when you're playing with your friends, you might be holding your baby brother or sister, or that a three-year-old is kind of trailing behind you. And it's um, part of, and I don't want to be romanticize it too much, but it is a stable formation that we had 
in the 20th century in the U.S., which is broken down completely. You know, people don't live in multifamily dwellings anymore. People don't have a sense of we live in a neighborhood where we are all looking out for one another's children, where you might discipline a, a, a teenager who's, you know, doing something troubling on the street, and that teenager would listen to you instead of cursing you out and saying you have no... I'm, you're not my mother, and even if you were my mother, I might say the same thing. So there's a kind of new fo family and social formations. And, and also, if I could just say about context, is the broader global political economic context of what we're glossing as neoliberalism, but the ways that rural Sudan, for example, adolescence is protracted by virtue of the, the debt economy. People, these young people growing up cannot make enough money in their jobs of, you know, like a teacher is not making enough money to get married, to buy the things you need to buy in order to set up your own household. So there's a lot fewer children, later marriage, That we may think that's a good, quote, good thing, but there's a way that their lives are stalled by circumstances that are not generated from within the community and not easily addressed within the community. And, you know, I did a sort of longitudinal study of going back and finding these kids and, you know, who were in various ways thriving and in other ways stalled. So shifting gears a little bit, reflecting on this workshop, but also on your own research, um, and not to generalize about interventions that are done for adolescents across different African countries, but if there was one thing which you think is commonly missed from these interventions, one thing you would really like to see changed for interventions in adolescents, or at least made more common, um, what, would, what would that thing be, as I say, based on your own research, based on reflections through this workshop, Lucy, if I can start with you? I don't think it's one thing. Mm. I think it's a combination of a few things, and I don't think that they cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I think that it is being very clear and very evidence-based about the combinations of interventions that you choose. I think it is being clear about the need for interventions to be feasible and cost-effective. We often come up with these big long lists that are not helpful or implementable on a, at scale. And I think that it is having young people, ideally adolescents, and not the kind of um, super duper professional advocate adolescents, but adolescents who will be the people using those interventions to, at the very least, sense check and tell people not to do something stupid. <laughs> something you would like to see changed or more common at least well for me on the African continent um, like Lucia said these are not expensive these are things that I look at myself and um, the opportunities I had that I think have largely helped me to be what I am I had opportunities I had love I had security, I had friendships, 
and have the opportunity to get a good education. And um, so that that has empowered me and I can make decisions and, I, and nobody can push me around. Mm -hmm. I think it makes a lot of difference. Adolescents, and like I said, children, adults, they need mentally healthy environments that will promote their emotional, their well-being. You know, I'm just like, I keep saying mental. That would promote well-being. What are those? Environments that are secure. You know you can wake up in the morning and go to school. You can move around, secure environments. They need friendships. They need schools that are supportive. Schools where they can learn in, under you know, decent circumstances, where they can be assured that they can have food, a good meal. The teachers understand adolescents and the way they think and they encourage critical learning and empower them so that they can, as adults, go out and join the workforce and be productive members of society. They need, you know, environments where they, you know, there's water, easy to get water, good drinking water, there's healthcare. And even when they make mistakes, an adolescent who gets pregnant, they're it's not the end of the, of the world. Mm -hmm. She knows that, and he too, because I say they are both pregnant, even though mm -hmm. one person carries the baby. I think that's something that we need to emphasize. It's both an adolescent girl and a boy, or whoever is the father. They need that hope that I'll have my, even when I'm pregnant, I can go to school and continue my education. I mean, we look around, and these are things that these people need. They need to be, they need, they're going to school, they don't want, I mean, they need decent uh, clothes or unit, can't be going to school with. They, a girl has her menstrual period, she needs sanitary pad. She just shouldn't have to use leaves or grab rags around the neighborhood. Basic things for, for, for a life of dignity and respect. I, I think um, all of the above. Um, and I think that, that that kind of, I love one of the things in this conference and in what said just said is like the importance of love mm -hmm. and not thinking that that's some, something extraneous to de development projects, to work, mm -hmm. to social reproduction. That question of love, of feeling loved, of feeling cared for, mm -hmm. of feeling creates a sense of security and capacity to weather difficult things, Absolute to you know, and that mm. is key to mm. growing up in a healthy, social, capacitated way. I would say, as uh, as a critic of so-called development projects, that one thing that is not so hard to do but seems impossible, it's never done, is to have an intergenerational perspective on the project, mm. to not have the timeline and you have this with research projects too, but not have the timeline be, this is a five-year project. And mm. if it displaces everyone from the possibility of staying in their community and finding work, that's not our problem. That is your problem. You know, if what development does, and this was to me the most crazy thing, was make fewer children per capita go to school mm. because the work requirements of the cotton and groundnut cultivation 
and the diminishment of other resources, or, you know, so it took longer to get firewood, took longer to graze animals, meant that children were going to school less frequently, and you call that development. You know, as a, certainly as an educator, I think education is a good part of, you know, making a future. Um, that that when I spoke to these, you know, kind of NGOs and state development, you know, they were like, yeah, we, well, that's outside of our purview. Well, why? Why can't you imagine a next generation within a project? You don't have to be the funder of that, but you need to be thinking, what is the we can't just have the measurement be cotton yields. Mm -hmm. The measurement is, where are our children going? What happened was that the village itself took on, a, you know, did this self-help thing, built a girls' school, hired women teachers. You know, it was formidable transformation, but it shouldn't require um, s such specialized... It, it should be something that's thought of as part of an, in, a, a, an intervention in any place. Mm. So any last thoughts? <laughs> Particularly for the African, um, African continent where we have a burden, a huge adolescent population coming up. In another few years, we're actually going to be, in terms of our adolescent population, almost as, um, as, you know, I have the same population or, you know, as Asia. So we are, we have a, this huge, young population, untapped resource. Mm. That population is Africa's wealth. And we need to harness that wealth for growth, for development, for peace. All the things that the SDGs, you know, you know, growth, development, and peace. And one of the ways is, we need to focus both on girls and boys. And I would say equity. Mm -hmm. You look at a boy or look at boys and say, what resources do they need to be the very best they can? And we look at girls, adolescent girls, and do the same thing. Give the boys and the girls, because there are slight differences, the resources they need to be the very best so that they can contribute and be part of the wealth of the African continent. Thank you. And I, I want to completely compliment and add to that because what I think the most moving, painfully moving, but extraordinary talks I ever heard in a university context was by Volesoyinka. And he talked about the loss of a generation's creativity. Mm. And he said, this is the biggest loss. Mm. This destruction of the possibility of this whole strata of young people's mm. futures and what they might have given mm. to their communities, mm. to Africa as a whole, to mm. their nations, to the world, is the, the biggest loss of all. Mm. And, and I, I, you know, sometimes you cry in talks because you can't wait to get out of them but this one I was just crying yeah. it was so moving and and I and I think that's what's at stake in yeah. precisely what you said yeah. thanks very much for listening to this podcast do have a listen to the others in this series on understanding adolescence in African contexts Thank you.